everyone, and welcome to episode 109 of the Retrospectors podcast, Advance Wars. My name is Patrick Arthur, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, James Turlings. James, we return to the tactical genre with a bang. We've done a couple of games like this. We've done Panzer General. Fire Emblem is pretty closely related to this, and of course, we've done Gorky 17. So we're not, we're not newcomers to this tactical genre had you played advance wars before have you dabbled in these games i'm guessing you have uh, given that you loved your handheld consoles in the past yeah i played one and two and the ds version of the game uh, quite a bit growing up so i've beaten one multiple times and two multiple times so uh, this series is nothing new to me and i'm glad we get to revisit it like i haven't played it since you know over 10 years ago so um i thought you know, I basically am going to have a different perspective going in for this episode, which is always really fun. Yeah, I've played these games a little bit. Uh, as I've mentioned on the show before, I did do a bit of emulation when I was growing up um, on my PC with some of these Game Boy games. And Advanced Wars was one of them, but it wasn't one that I really stuck with too long. Like I played it for an hour or two, got the basics of it and then moved on. But it's one I've always been intrigued in. I know that people love these games to depth. I know that people love these games to death. And there was always something about the elegance of the design that really appealed to me. Uh, it's got a lot less going on than something like Fire Emblem in terms of story and characters and abilities and stats. But that may be to its strength more than its detriment. Yeah, it ends up playing more like military chess than a, you know Fire Emblem or something else where you have a lot of characters and abilities. And the simplicity, like low number values, lack of RPG progression kind of thing, does lend it this very, like, pick-up-and-play approach that worked very well uh, on handheld. Um, so, you know, with the there was a remaster that came out recently, which, you know, gave us a lot of suggestions to play this one. So I'm glad we got all those and um, looking forward to reviewing it. Yeah, now, you and I didn't play the uh, the new one, did we, James? I uh, I was considering buying the new one so that we'd have the contrast between the old and new. However, the game cost $90, and I wasn't quite ready to shell out $90 on a game that would probably take uh, about... Australia tax? Yeah, five to six you hours You know, it, it costs more money to ship those digital editions, you know, <laughs> un through the underground cables or the satellite, whatever they're doing these <laughs> days. Just too expensive. The logistics, just insane. Yeah, so <laughs> the, um, the price of free was too good to pass up. It's kind of frustrating because I'm pretty sure I would have shelled out $50 on this game, even if I'd only played Advance Wars 1, but it was just a bit too 90 steep. is a bit crazy, yeah. yeah. Um, so we'll be getting into our gameplay and story discussion of Advance Wars in just a moment, but for those who have never listened to us before, James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast. What we do each and every three weeks is we play through a retro classic or cult game of the past with the intention of reviewing it from a modern perspective. We're not here to evaluate and understand these games in the context in which they are produced. We simply want to know how good it is today when compared side by side with many of the indie and not so indie titles that get released every single day. Now, this may seem like an unfair standard of criticism at first, and to some degree it is, but what we've discovered over the past four or five years of doing this show is that a lot of the time, the way games were designed in the past, which many would or some would consider is a more old-fashioned way of designing games, is actually not old-fashioned at all. In fact, in some ways and in some cases, you have games that are 
considerably better than their modern counterparts entirely because of those supposedly outdated design principles. Um, and I think this is fascinating. Now, some of the games we've played have been outright stinkers as well, but in just as many cases, we've discovered that these games can produce a unique and interesting experience that is otherwise very hard to get uh, with modern game design, with the indie scene aside, of course, because the indie scene uh, is one of the best scenes to revive and rediscover what it was about these old games that was so special. So we come in from that perspective and we uh, we find that it's a harsh standard of criticism, but one that is able to uncover gems uh, far, far better than a more nostalgic driven discussion. Uh, so if you like the sound of what we're doing or you want to listen to our other episodes, you can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net. And we've also got a buy me a coffee page if you'd like to support the show monetarily. So let's talk Advance Wars. So Advance Wars is a turn-based tactics slash strategy video game developed by Intelligent Systems, and it was first released in 2001 for the, surprisingly, the Game Boy Advance. Um, it came out in the following years in, in uh, Australia, in the EU, and it came out um, in Japan actually like three years later, which is very unusual for a Game Boy game. Usually it tends to be the other way around. So in this game, you play as an advisor to the commanders of the Orange Star Army. You're basically leading the battles, but there are other characters who are the actual generals who are in charge. You're the advisor, so you're doing everything, but the game uses this role of you being the uh, advisor to these characters so that you can play as the different COs uh, who are unexpectedly attacked, who have to fight back to claim that territory and maybe discover the cause of the war along the way. Uh, that's really all I'm going to say for the story because we're getting into it in just a moment, but that's the basic setup. You're kind of fighting a defensive operation to begin with, and then you're more invading other territories to get to the bottom of what's going on. So to give you guys a very, we probably will start with story discussion, but I think it's a good idea to paint a picture of what the very basic setup of this game is like. So it's a 2D overview, so you can see a map. Most of the time this map screen is fairly small, so it will be a bit bigger than what you can see on one screen, so you can scroll left or right to see more of the battlefield, but it's a relatively small screen, unlike something like uh, Panzer General where the maps are massive, it's more akin to Fire Emblem in that way, and that, that the map is pretty easy to grok uh, in your head uh, with a couple of short scrolls around the screen. So it's top-down perspective, and both players have army units. So they've got tanks and infantry, they've got flying units like copters and bombers, and they have naval units like submarines and battleships. Uh, each turn, you can move these units around the map to either engage with enemies or if in the case of infantry, capture buildings and bases to advance your economy or production. Um, the objective of each mission is usually to destroy all enemy units or capture your enemy's headquarters, which can once again only be done with infantry. But throughout the campaign, you'll have special objectives as well, like rescuing a unit, i.e. protecting it for a certain number of turns, or it could just be holding out and surviving for a certain number of turns before you can inevitably turn the tide and finish the mission. Um, these missions tend to be pretty short. You can normally knock them over in you know, 15 to 20 minutes. They're usually only five to 10 turns, depending on how quickly you can run them over. So it's a very 
tight, short, fast dose of tactical action. Yeah. It's not like super complex. All of the units have very simple rules. They don't have special abilities. Uh, it's more of a matter of playing the tight and meaningful terrain features, um, capturing to boost your economy, uh, and building the right units to counter uh, the units your opponent has. Um, or if there are no buildings, uh, if there are no unit producing buildings, which is the case for a lot of the missions, um, you know, just figuring out how to maximize what you do have, because there is no, um, in a lot of strategy games, there'd be like building, building, like you can make new buildings on the map. That's not the case here. Each of the map has buildings uh, in pre-existing locations, um, and that's it. Yeah, and notably, as James said, there's no progression here. There's no unit veterancy, units that carry over from map to map. There's no units leveling up uh, and gaining abilities like Fire Emblem. There's no unit levels. Uh, it's not like your units are getting stronger. They're, a tank is always a tank is always a tank. Uh, there is some variability to the unit's relative power depending on which CO you choose and who the enemy CO is. But if you're playing a map, your tanks will always be tanks of exactly the same strength level, and the same is true of the enemy commander. So there's a consistency here that doesn't require advanced mathematics to understand relative uh, unit strength or values. It's kind of very set in stone, and it's a known information game. I think James mentioning you know that this is you know battle chess is pretty accurate there is a little yeah. bit more going on under the hood but for the most part it's a known information game so let's move on to the basic story and the premise and that kind of thing and i think the thing that stands out is probably the tone and the presentation of the game um advanced wars is a fairly like bright and cheerful game with peppy characters and an energetic soundtrack um and there's really you know for a game about war between like four countries there is like zero uh mention of any of this basically and it's all presented as a big game of chess between friends basically um despite them actually being at war which you know as a child i never really noticed this distinction but you know playing it as an adult um this stuck out to me very early on um and you know i promptly got over it but it was a bit odd to begin with it is funny isn't it because it plays out more like a board game between friends as you said uh and i mean the content of this game is people dying and you know you see the units get shot to pieces but this game is rated e for everyone so they've clearly gone a long way to divorce war from <laughs> its horrific reality as much as possible for the most part i think it works like you, you kind yeah. of you kind of forget the um the actual real life context of this game and can just ignore it entirely as a as a gameplay board game essentially but it is funny to think about isn't it like we, we've played games that are <laughs> like this you know, fire emblem uh, path of radiance is the obvious one where they do take uh serious effort to explore some of the realities of war not in an R-rated way, but there is some confrontation of the circumstances of it and reinforced through gameplay with character death. Here, there's there's actually nothing. Like, even the enemies that are invading you, it's kind of like G-rated cartoon interactions, and in the end, they end up all friends together <laughs> anyway. It's all some big misunderstanding that they've yeah. had all of these people <laughs> die over. So... 
I actually don't think this is a bad thing because they do. Yeah, you got to say while playing through it, it's able to sell sell it to the point where you forget about the reality of what you're doing. And if the game is that successful at doing it, it's hard to be too mad about it. Yeah, and they really commit to their presentation, I think. This game, and we're, you know, touching on aesthetics here, actually, I think it still looks really good. Um, lots of the lots of the character models, you know, it's all 2D sprites. They bounce around when in their idle positions, and uh, their battle animations are really, like, fairly detailed and do a really good job of, like, capturing, um, you know, the type of unit you're using and their strengths and weaknesses. Um, the character sprites are all fun um, and enjoyable. You know, the lines, not a lot of them make me laugh out loud, but they have that this, like, pleasant tone that's kind of hard to, you know, not be charmed by. Um, I think they did a really good job, and it all really works well. And I think it works especially well um, with the really small kind of cartoony map that has, you know, very meaningful terrain features on it, but at the end of the day is kind of tiny. Yeah, I'm less high on the actual interactions between characters. It's just too shallow to really have me engaged yeah. with at any level whatsoever. And the story kind of wraps up unconvincingly very quickly. So while I agree that the aesthetic here is incredible, I think that that little thing, like it's a tiny little thing, but the units bobbing up and down on the map, I know it sounds insane, but if the game did not have that, the game would look way worse. It just, that tiny little bobbing up and down animation adds so much personality to these characters with how they're presented. It's it's nuts. And I think that when the units get into a battle, so you have like your recon units firing at infantry, it just looks fantastic. Like it looks really, really good. Definitely, definitely better than um than uh, Panzer General. And I far yeah. prefer the simpler animations to what they were doing with the 3D models in Fire Emblem, which are just like it doesn't look very good no right? the, the 3d models have not aged well for their combat but the 2d sprites they've aged fantastically and yeah i i love i love the look of this game i especially like how lots of the units like have different combat animations based on their terrain like you mm. will just see your units firing out of a forest and this kind of idea they have where they split the screen in two and kind of show like a zoomed in perspective of each unit like without the space in between i think it actually works really well for conveying the location and the terrain bonuses to the player because mm. um, you can have like a unit in a forest and on the left of the screen they'll be standing just in a forest um shooting at you know some characters just on a mountain you know there's no explanation of what's in between like where the mountain connects to the forest but you don't need that you just need to know like what defensive bonus they're getting basically mm. um and i think you're right that the uh, map does a great job of conveying the information to the player there's never any ambiguity about where yep. you are what you're standing in what the relative bonuses will be there's a great effort to communicate all of that to the player uh, as cleanly as possible so not only are the aesthetics not only does this game look really good it's it's a kind of good that doesn't get in the way of the gameplay at all and in many ways enhances it so yeah i really have nothing bad to say about the general presentation of this game the story is definitely undercooked yes uh, it is undercooked but at the I same at the same time i mean would i have enjoyed a deeper story with these kinds of characters and this kind of presentation i don't think so like to be completely no. honest this isn't my kind of story at all 
I it's a game that's rated E for everyone. They were never going to have any proper deep exploration of any of these themes, as far as I can tell. Maybe, maybe they've got better campaign stories in the later games. But my feeling is that the very minimalist approach worked in its favor because you can focus on the general presentation as opposed to getting stuck in the weeds with a shitty story. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you could have made the dialogue, you know, had it be a bit funnier and locate in had it be a bit funnier in certain spots. Like I think the snappiness and the small amount of it is really good. I think you can probably squeeze a bit more enjoyment out of that small amount of dialogue they do have though. I think it can feel a bit flat at times. The Japanese but, general is good. I like him. How he's an idiot. It's yeah, quite. It's quite funny. Completed. And his daughter yeah. actually knows much better than him what what to do. But each of the missions that he's in, it's quite good because you have story and gameplay flow. Like he'll say something, uh, completely misunderstand the strategic impact, and then you go into a mission where you actually get to see <laughs> that in reality. Definitely yes. the best instance of that is where uh, his daughter's like, you need to capture more bases. He's like, I will capture the base closest to the enemy. And then he has a land base on an island that's just completely yes. irrelevant. <laughs> he just builds a bunch of units from it. So the, this small island is filled with ground units that just stand there doing just nothing. Just can't do anything. Yeah, yeah and, that was great. And that was really good because you kind of got the, um, the story and the gameplay like meshing together in a, in a very funny in a very funny way. Yeah, in a way that a lot of the others don't, I think. So um, good job there. If we saw more stuff like that, then I think it would be, you know, a very easy uh, pass for the story. But even without that, I think the presentation's great and I love it to bits. Yeah, and I think part of the reason we see less of that is how the story is always at the tail end and beginning of missions. You get no story mid-mission uh, and you get no real, I guess, gameplay developments mid-mission like one of the things that fire emblem does a lot is it'll do ambushes or reinforcements arriving and they're, mo they're basically moments to communicate story mid-mission advanced wars has none of that what you see at the start of the mission is always what you get uh which you know isn't a bad thing from a gameplay perspective but it does restrict its ability to actually i disagree sort of i think the first time you encounter a new commanding officer they often do this thing where you don't know what their power is yet, and it takes you by surprise halfway through the mission. That is like, true, yeah. Okay. Um, what's his name? Uh, the guy, is it, who can fly? Eagle? Eagle, yeah. Has, his power is he takes two turns in a <laughs> row. <laughs> that caught me completely off guard. Um, spoilers, the final boss's mission is he summons a meteor, um, that crushes a nine by nine, a three by three square. That took that was fun to discover. Uh, like the tsunami or the blizzard, those kinds of things I think do work in that respect. Yeah, on you make a great point, James. When the enemy commanders do first use their SEO power, that is a story moment for sure. Um, but yeah, in general, um, you don't have that mid-mission thing. Like when we did Panzer General, one of the things I mentioned about the story was that uh, the story value of that game is very rooted in history. So if you're history buff, you can appreciate it. With Fire Emblem, not only do you get reinforcements and ambushes and things, you also just get mid-battle uh, character interactions, whether you're rescuing yeah. someone from a house or you're fulfilling the mini objectives of recruiting npcs or whatever so the story is very laced throughout the gameplay here it's just the light touch the focus is very much on the gameplay but i i don't want to undersell how much the 
presentation here kind of gives the game a flavor that you can kind of sink your teeth into um even if this like the main plot is very light yeah and i do want to point out that i think some people are going to like that there's not much interruption during the battles like mm. it just lets you get on with it and play the game for much of it so you know uh mileage is going to vary there depending on how much you care about that kind of thing in your strategy games yeah and i mean it, absolutely this isn't i'm not framing these things as bad things i think that for people who want a more gameplay focused experience advance wars is absolutely going to deliver without a bunch of complications but it is worth noting that this is like the story here is a very light touch so if you're the kind of person who gets a lot more invested in characters as part of your uh tactical gameplay experience a la fire emblem then this is this is a very different kind of experience i think it's important to differentiate yeah i agree with that so on the whole pretty positive with you know some you know debatable things here and there depending on your preferences um let's move on to a quick music break um i thought that it was funny i think that it's really cool that every single commanding officer has a unique battle theme and during a mission whenever the turns switch it switches music for the you know the active turn players uh current commander's theme so you end up getting a lot of variety throughout the campaign generally um normally throughout the campaign you've got a selection between three characters to pick from so you end up hearing their themes a lot um, it was a bit actually annoying at the start. If you do the tutorial, you have the same character, 10 turn, like the same two characters for, you know, 10 missions in a row. So it does start to get a bit repetitive. Um, and when, because you switch turns so much, you end up hearing the start of every character's themes way more than the mid and the late sections, which kind of, you know, adds to that feeling of repetition. That aside, though, I really like the music in this game. I think it's all very expressive um, and really gets across the qualities of the character. I particularly like um, Sammy and Olaf's theme, and I think most of the music in this game is good, um, and there's a couple of tracks that are quite good. So I have to admit to not actually listening to very much music while I was playing. Um, I did the thing I did with Fire Emblem where I was playing with the game sped up to, you know, 400% or so. So, uh, you know, to make the animations faster. Um, so I'm one of those guilty people who didn't listen to it much. I will say off the bat, I don't think this is a game where which requires that kind of speed up compared to Fire Emblem because the animations are a lot snappier and things just move faster in general. But it's still a nice quality of life thing if you really want to zip through everything. Um, but I did go back and listen to the soundtrack, and I do think that it is a good soundtrack. It it's very it's very uh, drum heavy, which makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of these are military themes with one or two exceptions. Yeah. Uh, so you know, they're kind of like I guess the closest thing to it would be something like Red Alert 2's OST, and I think that Sturm's theme is actually something that really could great. pretty pretty closely fit onto the red alert 2 soundtrack i i think the music here is good i like it but i also think this is a game where you probably don't need to be listening to the music because the story is so stripped out of the gameplay um there's not as much emotional investment in these yeah. in the gameplay experience yeah the music isn't driving home anything other than like 
you know, high tempo energeticness. Like he could swap it out for anything on that theme and still. He can listen to a podcast. I I think while playing (laughs) this game, you're very focused on the gameplay. The music is not out of place here. The music is not bad. You could listen to the music and have a fine time. But I also don't, of all the games we've played, uh, this is one of those games where I don't believe the music is an essential part of the experience. If, if Yeah, even when we did like Fire Emblem, I think that narratively, like it can shift the tone quite a bit, yes. like from mission to mission. And so the music there really does help to elevate that. Mm-hmm. Here, the tone is always peppy and energetic. And it never changes basically for the whole game. Except for so, maybe Sturm's theme. That that definitely yeah. has. And you know, the last in general, the last couple of missions you play against him, there's something more discordant about those final mm. battles. Yeah. So I agree with that, and I still listen to the music the whole way through because I liked it. Mm. Um, but I could I can get behind that as well. Yeah. All right, James, what what song are we doing? Um, so I would have picked probably Andy's theme because it's probably the most iconic if I hadn't been like drilled, if that hadn't been drilled into my ear during the tutorial mm. and I came to, you know, hate it a little bit for a while there. So I'm going to go with Sammy's theme. It's kind of, you know, also on that spectrum of being, you know, really energetic. Um, and I ended up playing that character quite a lot in the um the war room missions um just because i think infantry are probably the best units in the game Mm. and having better infantry is awesome so this is sammy's theme Sammy's theme and we're going to start talking about the gameplay now. Um, I think for me probably the most obvious place to start is to start talking about the web of units because I think in a tactics game especially one that's kind of maybe reminiscent of chess with a bit more rock paper scissors this is probably like the key part that makes the game fun or not. You know if you get this wrong the game kind of isn't enjoyable to play and I think they did quite a good job. There's a lot of unit types and they all have their own strengths and weaknesses from your artillery to your infantry, um, your air units and your naval units and I kind of enjoyed um, figuring out uh, how best to make use of them and that kind of changes based on your commanding officer too. Yeah so let's talk a bit about that basic rock paper scissors. So the idea is that you've got, for example, let's start with something like a, uh, a tank, just your normal regular tank. So tanks have good movement along roads and open terrain. They can't go over mountains, but they can go through forests, albeit far, far slower than your infantry. They are effective in combat against infantry units and lighter vehicles, so the recons and the APCs. Um, But they are weak to heavier units, the heavy tanks, as well as the artillery and rockets. 
and they get absolutely murdered by uh the aircraft units so your uh so your battle copters and your bombers uh so we have with the medium tank a basic outline of what this unit's strengths and weaknesses are and the final i guess lever by which they balance these unit strengths and weaknesses is their economic cost and even though economic cost isn't always relevant in these missions where some of them they just provide you with units you also have to do a calculation on the tank's cost which is 7k versus your medium tank's cost which is 16k and i would say pretty much every unit in the game you can give a list of these kinds of strengths and weaknesses which balances them against the other units in the game i think that like it's kind of relevant in this discussion to mention that if you own a city you'll get 1000 gold per turn um and you'll normally start with like four or five and then get up to maybe like six or eight near the end of a mission so um a sixteen thousand gold medium tank is quite an investment so there is a lot of opportunity cost decision making when it comes to building the units um and you know then their speed um, the kind of map you're on how much like cover terrain there is how difficult the terrain is to navigate kinds of plays you know quite a big factor even stuff like the distance between your base and the next closest unoccupied cities is really important to consider because you can only capture cities with infantry units um, and infantry are the cheapest and weakest units in the game um, and there's a stronger infantry unit the mech that has like a rocket launcher um, but has much reduced movement they're very slow so um like early on you kind of try to buy a lot of light units and you can maybe spend some money on like an APC to ferry units back and forth um, because they can pick up infantry and drop them down with greater movement um, or you can buy stuff like recon units to get in early and start harassing units to stop them capturing bases that kind of thing. I found that generally um, in the campaign they did a good job of having missions that uh, incentivized all the unit types um, and then when i went back and started playing the individual versus maps uh, you really got a sense for managing the economy a bit more than you did in the campaign i think that the balance in this game is actually yeah. fantastic now now it's never going to be perfect right like you, you never ever for a game without online updates uh you're just not going to reach a level of balance perfection in version 1.0 for a video a video game of this era but realistically they they did a yes. really good job you, you can justifiably purchase every unit in this game and not be too unhappy with it because every single unit does something relevant for the cost of it being produced uh, even something like the recon unit, which is like fairly dinky that gets murdered by pretty much everything except your vanilla infantry, uh, has the effect of reveal revealing units in Fog of War um, with a massive radius, which is incredible. Even your shitty infantry, which are killed by everything, well, they capture buildings, so you can't hate them. Even the crazy expensive units, so the battleships and the, the bombers, bombers are like insane are if you still, actually get them out. It's yeah. still really good. Yeah, like it, it, it's still you still don't feel bad about producing any of these units because they all do something amazing. I would say the unit I used probably the least was the uh, artillery, the the basic artillery. Really, uh, just generally okay. because well, I I use yeah. rockets a lot, um, but artillery were usually my stopgap. Like I'd build one or two of them to help me transition to the late game. 
but even then they're still doing something very yes. valuable um to to get me to the late game so man i i think the balance here is really good and it's more complicated than rock paper scissors because of the relevant movement of the of the uh different units the fact that aerial units obviously have unprecedented uh movement with no terrain restrictions but they tend to be more vulnerable i mean the naval units are generally kind the worst of like i'd say like i'd say worse. the worst unit is the anti-air missile it's just extremely expensive yeah and narrow. But because like the ant normal anti-air tank is very cheap like it costs a thousand more than a regular tank at eight thousand and it always one shots mm. like basically any aerial unit and has quite large movement range so i and Rex yeah, so I found the more expensive missiles to be like just a waste of investment compared to the. That's true. I I didn't buy them. <laughs> the the other problem is they still get destroyed by bombers because the bombers' it's movement range is such that they can sweep yeah. <laughs> in on them before they get an attack off. Whereas the rockets, uh, you will almost always get at least one attack off on the unit that's coming to get you. So. Yeah, the missiles are, are quite bad. I don't know if they have applications in the larger, like the larger multiplayer maps because, you know, yep. the maps are bigger. But you're right, the, the anti-aircraft guns are goated. So you those just guns are amazing. And I think their existence kind of makes, like bombers are really expensive and extremely powerful. Like they will just wreck tanks, but they will also just die in one attack from an anti-air tank, which is super cheap. So... Normally, when I found in the maps where you could have aerial units, you really wanted to like get into a position where you could suppress the enemy's anti-air tanks first before sending them in, which kind of like led mm. to this like slow, deliberate um, advance to a base before you know taking out the key. You know, you want to take out the rocks before you build scissors in this game a lot of the time, you know? <laughs> um, and I thought that was really well done. The battle choppers are really strong for yeah. their cost as well. I can't believe like how 9, cheap they are. Yeah. I was 8,000 or yeah. 9,000. And transport copters are definitely the they're the best infantry carriers because they move over terrain quite quickly um, and over mountains, which is really important. I thought that the way they did terrain in this game was quite good. I really like how pronounced the terrain bonuses are. Like, um, a, a rocket launcher infantry on a mountain will just beat a tank because the mountain provides so much cover. Um, same with woods provide a lot. So you end up, like, really, like, taking care of positioning um, and the way the maps are designed really impact your strategy a lot. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I... I feel like maybe I've misunderstood this game or you understood it better than me, James, because I found that the terrain, while it mattered, wasn't as deep as you're suggesting. Um, I found that, in general, my positioning was far more related to where the enemy happened to be positioning as opposed to maximizing my terrain bonuses. Uh, to take a step back, the broad strategy that I would say I would use was that of counterattacking. To start with, I was playing very aggressively. I was basically bum-rushing the enemy, but that stopped working even as soon as mission, I don't know, about halfway yep. through the campaign. And my broad strategy tended to coalesce around, uh, I guess, the shitty AI. So... In most of these missions, uh, you start out outnumbered by the enemy. The enemy has a superior force to you. 
And in broad strokes, getting your initial attack off is much stronger than defending. So attack when you attack, you shoot first, then the enemy will counterattack if they're able to, like if it's a tank versus a tank, and they'll be attacking you. They, they won't really do that much damage back usually. So what I would do is I would position my units in a way so that when the enemy advance forwards, I would be able to use my units to launch a large counterattack all at the same time on those enemy units, massively reduce their forces and therefore reduce the potential damage they can inflict back on me when it's their turn. And I would say that I tended to pay a lot more attention to the potential movement ranges of the enemy and the potential actions that they could take against me versus positioning myself in the terrain perfectly because a lot of the time i was just trying to finishing finish these missions as quickly yeah. as possible it's interesting i find there's a big distinction between the maps where you can build units and the ones where you can't i think that strategy mm. games like this like and this was very pronounced when we did fire emblem um tend to have this thing where uh early turn turtling is super encouraged like you just wait for them to come to you because they spread out mm -hmm. they don't hold like clever formations they don't send their tankiest units in first they just send a few units in to die one by one like you just have a mech unit sitting in a city um and the tank will rock up shoot it they'll actually get to like the same health because of the terrain bonus and then you can counterattack to kill heal up and then once you've thinned out the forces, then you can start your advance. Whereas, yeah, and this was more pronounced when you couldn't build units yourself, I think, um, just because you really, really had to protect and heal your units up, um, or you could just lose the mission. Whereas, I think when you can build units, it starts becoming more about, like, uh, controlling areas of the map and trying to, like, like, if you're not going for a rush strategy, like, you kind of just want to control as many cities as possible for, like, a large number of turns to accumulate a big economic advantage and then crush them in the later turns with, you know, heaps of bombers and that kind of thing. Um, and I think getting to that point, you know, isn't always as simple as just waiting for them to come to you. Yeah, it's funny because I, I enjoyed the missions where because there's there's broadly two kinds of missions and there are some special ones but it's the ones where you can build yeah. and the ones where you can't the ones where you can't you have limited forces so if you have a bad turn and james i i failed missions yeah, me too. like definitely i failed missions particularly often the first time i'd try it i would overextend they'd wipe out a few of my units and i'd be like shit that was my only medium tank i don't know how i meant to yeah take out their medium tank now now that they've got a full health unit so you you make mistakes and you get punished very harshly for them it, i generally enjoyed those more even though i was using the same broad strategy of counterattacking, because there was a bit of nuance to that you can't just move your units randomly and hope things work out you still need to seize opportunities to like take out those enemy rockets if they're in range because they're going to I do found, a lot of damage to if you let them live for example yeah i found those missions to be better when there was fog of war um and mm. like if there was flying units and artillery and rockets because if you hide a rocket in a forest you have to be right next to the forest to see the unit and they can attack you while invisible basically so 
if, and they have absurd range. Like they they have a range probably one unit greater than I would typically expect yeah. from a game like this. I don't think they've got an unfair range or anything. It's just that they've got an actual balanced power curve for for a long range sniping unit. Whereas I think that like in Fire Emblem, um, archers are kind of bad. Yeah, they're kind of bad. Whereas in this game, your archer units, the artillery, they feel like the appropriate power level they're super vulnerable and they die easily but they dish out serious damage at a serious range if you leave them on yeah and one of the commanding officers has an extra range as this passive <laughs> which makes it even trickier sometimes yeah. yeah i thought that's good i like missions like that because with the fog of war like at some point you have to push forward like into unknown territory be that with your recon unit or if one's died like maybe an infantry but like you can't expose your infantry because if you run out of infantry you can't capture anymore and you kind of just lose so you kind of have to risk putting a tankier unit out there and there might just be two artillery hiding there and you just lose it so you know there was a bit of you know give and take with that which i thought made the fog of war missions more enjoyable than you know when you can see the whole map and you only have a few units i i do think you raise an interesting point though james about the um incentives in these build missions potentially being more interesting because if you're in a build mission and you need to seize territory to get your economy rolling in theory that does provide you know a lot more grounds for tactical decision making right yeah. than these missions where you can kind of turtle up a bit and take your time i think that here the map is like the game is kind of hurt by its decision to have far more smaller and simpler battle maps because the vast majority of the time there's only a single front of battle really like there might be one or two units defending an area where you want to seize units but it doesn't really open up a whole new front of battle where you're having to fight on two to three fronts at once it's usually just you have the one main area where conflict is occurring usually around some choke point or central part of the map and you can pretty safely take yep the others divert what you think is slightly more resources than what they have to that area of the map you seize it and then it ultimately all comes down to the same kind of broad death war strategy yeah the maps this where is... it was like an s and you kind of just linear progress down a road until the end were probably my least favorite just because of that mm. whereas i found outside of the campaign um the war room maps generally had these more like you could approach the enemy base from three different angles and you kind of wanted mm. to because there was like buildings that you wanted to capture on different sides of the map um you know rush strategies aside which i think are quite powerful in this game um so there is a bit more nuance in those maps i actually found that playing the non-campaign maps it felt more like playing uh quote unquote the real game um hmm. where you had access to every unit type most types of bases generally every type of terrain and it was just like you know pure strategy um so... I, it, it's funny i think one of the differences between this and a traditional rts we we di we haven't done starcraft one for the show but i did it over with uh the nostalgia goggles podcast is that by the end of those starcraft one campaigns with each races you got access to everything um and you were you kind of saw the economic end game of what those games were promising where you could set up two three four bases and have your economy in full swing um and you know have you know six or seven unit producing buildings and kind of go ham 
the game never really reaches that point in the campaign. Yeah, it you you just don't get that full strategic uh, outlook, and the game never demands that you kind of fully uh, come to grips with having a bunch of production buildings and a bunch of economy, and you're having to make serious decisions about which units to buy and kind of what your strategic direction should be. This is very much a tactics game in my mind, at least in the first campaign, because the scope of the confrontations remain small enough. Uh, even though I think every all the building blocks are here are here for a full blown strategy game. Yeah. Um. On so I wanted to also talk about uh, commanding officers and their balance in this game. So, of yeah. So generally, the commanding officer you pick comes with a positive bonus. So if we take Max, for example, his positive bonus is he does 50% more damage with direct units. Like tanks, Very balanced. Very balanced. Totally balanced. Um, his downside is all his ranged units, like his artillery, have one less range, which is actually like... It sounds significant. It's, so, and it it's is. very significant, yes. Um, and his, like, uh, his superpower, and everyone gets like a power that builds up. Uh, every turn that they can use you know once every like five turns or something um is just like even more damage basically like his tanks will just one hit other tanks quite comfortably uh during that turn um there'll be there's a commanding officer like olaf who makes it snow for two turns or his turn and your turn um that drastically slows down enemy movement and powers up his units uh, there's uh, Sammy, whose thing is all her infantry gets double movement for the turn and captures better. Um, you know, there's a lot of variety in the commanding officers, I think, that makes you... There's a, there's one character whose thing is uh, units cost more but do a bit more damage, so they have just slightly tankier units. Um, you know, there's a quite a bit of variety here. Um, I think that the balance is correct on the most part for the game. If you are trying to evaluate the balance in terms of like a competitive multiplayer setting, I would say it's not very good. But for a mostly, and I would mostly consider this game single player, um, I think they did a good job. Because basically, um, you command the Orange Star commanders, and there's three of them. There's Andy, Max, uh, and Sammy. Uh, Max is ridiculously overpowered. Uh, Sammy feels quite weak. <laughs> to make it, to make it clear, on I looked up some tier lists of commanders, and above S tier they have Max tier. Yeah, yeah he's <laughs> just like just ridiculous. Max. So, so uh, Max is broken in half beyond belief. To to give to make it completely clear. Yeah, well, during the campaign, I found Sammy quite useless, um, and then came around on using them during the war room maps, um, but. The way it shakes out really is that during the campaign you'll often get choices of three missions, one for each character, and the mission will be completely different, right? Um, like the map is different uh, and their abilities are different. And basically Max is easy mode, Andy's normal, and Sammy is hard mode generally. Um, and I like, really like this structure actually because it means like you can do different missions if you play through the campaign multiple times because... Like, once you pick one of the three, the other two are gone forever until you come back um, to this point in the campaign. And I liked that I got to, like, change my difficulty, like, as I played, basically. Because I think normally, like, if you pick hard on a game, you're just locked into a slog for the entire time. I kind of liked 
you know, mostly trying to beat the hard missions and then sometimes having a max mission for fun, <laughs> <laughs> which was just like full unga bunga. I send my tanks in and they blow everything up. So I thought that was good. And I think for, you know, and I think this game is targeted probably at players new to the strategy genre. Um, so I think having, you know, this kind of option and this kind of variety in the campaign and a bit of variance in the commanding officer's power levels actually does make a bit of sense here. So with that out of the way, let's go into a music break. We'll pick Max's theme and then we'll get into a bit of a discussion about the officer powers. that was max's theme patrick how did you feel about the co powers in this game in general the co's are the one thing i would say which really injects a bit of weirdness and unexpected power uh into what is otherwise a very dry tactical game one of the things that i think is very interesting about advanced wars is how restrained it is in its design we've mentioned several times that it's like battle chess and the reason for that is that these units don't have special abilities, they don't level up, they always do what you expect them to do. For some people this is going to be fantastic because there's uh, very little variance in this game, it's a very uh, public information game, but for others they might find it a bit boring. It's not like your tanks have the ability to teleport or you know they pick up a power up on the map and they can suddenly deal double damage for the next three turns. These units do what they do and they do it well, but they do it in an expected way. These powers are one of the ways in which the tides of battle can drastically shift, particularly if you give all your units a second turn, which wrecked me on a number of occasions, for sure. Uh, I agree with you, James. I think that the variance in powers for a single-player campaign is a good thing, and if you're going to play competitively, there are some serious problems. Yeah. Uh, luckily, if you're going to play competitive Advance Wars today, you can play a. Um, we're going to mention this lab, may well mention it now. There's a platform called Advance Wars by Web, a WBW, which is kind of the equivalent of Pokemon Showdown for Advance Wars, where they it's like a modified version of, of Advance Wars 3 to create a greater sense of balance in the gameplay. And I think that that's going to fix you up for. Um, for your multiplayer battles mostly um and i yeah and i did quite enjoy it because i went from like thinking sammy was useless to like playing them a bit more and working out how to play 
you know, with those weaknesses and strengths. And it ended up being like a fun learning curve, um, which I don't think you can really get if you have like try to balance them perfectly. Well, part of that is that in the single player, a lot of the time you're not even capturing buildings. So yeah. capturing buildings is irrelevant or close to irrelevant so yeah. one of her big power points is completely irrelevant yes is completely moot uh versus um in the larger skirmish maps where capturing buildings is all that matters <laughs> yes uh, i agree with that so i wanted to also talk a bit about game modes because we have talked about the campaign a bit but i actually did duck into the war room a lot to buy maps and play those which is um, a skirmish mode, essentially, right? Yeah, it's basically, like 1v1, start, you start on the same footing. Yeah, you start on the same footing, um, and you have a ranking, and you can pick any of your commanding officers, not just the three from the campaign, but you can actually get access to all of the enemy commanding officers. Like, you can unlock them. For example, like, if you pick certain missions during the campaign, you may be offered a special mission that beating it lets you unlock that character for use in the war room. Um, you can buy them from this shop that you get coins from beating the campaign and the uh, skirmish style missions. There is a like a lot of characters to unlock, actually, including the like narrator character um, and the big bad. And there is actually a hard mode you can buy from the shop um, upon beating the game, which I'm told is very ball-bustingly hard and is basically like a puzzle game in the tight execution that's required to beat the levels. Yeah, I I haven't played this hard mode, but I did some reading, and yeah, people consider the hard mode of this game, like, it's not even like a challenge mode, it's like abuse the AI if you want to succeed mode. Like, the <laughs> only way you're getting through this is if you play close to perfectly and maximize the units that you have, because the odds are so heavily stacked against you. Which is interesting. I, I don't think we've ever really played a game that has a new game plus this that is this challenging before. Um, and I kind of like that the game has something like this on offer for people who really want to sink their teeth into something difficult. And I think that it's really good. Like, I was surprised at how actually fully featured Advanced Wars 1 feels. There's like so many skirmish maps to buy and unlock so many commanding officers a hard mode multiplayer if you want to bother getting the link cable set up <laughs> um you know a full campaign that has different like sort of different routes through it and unlockable scenes and that kind of thing so it really did feel like a complete package and i'm really quite happy with that um i finished the campaign and actually ended up playing a lot of the you know the optional content afterwards because i was just having fun and i wanted to mess around with the other commanding officers abilities you know it's just a it's like a complete package that offers a pretty good time and even though what it means i mean it's a pretty short campaign it'll probably only take you about five hours to get through pending how many times the game kicks your ass as you're figuring stuff out but for the most part i, I think you're going to be you're going to enjoy your time with this game one way or another way you stick around for the skirmishes or not i did have one other major point that i wanted to get into james yep. which is the ui 
and the presentation. Oh, it's really good, right? It's it's excellent. So to start with, um, before you start the main game, there's a tutorial, and I, you know, being the hot shot that I was, I was, was like, I don't need to do the tutorial. I've played games like this before, and so what you can do is you can skip to the last mission in the tutorial, which I did because I was like, I don't want to bother with this shit. And then I promptly misunderstood several gameplay elements yep. <laughs> and had to um, figure it out as I went. And I think that it is an absolute credit to this game that despite me completely skipping the tutorial, I was able to learn all of the restrictions and information in this game simply by fumbling my way through the first several missions. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for this. I, I think the first is something we discussed earlier, which is that there's a great uh, graphical clarity in this. You know, they've really gone out of their way with their... Uh, visual design to communicate everything to the player but they also have made several choices with the um with the gameplay to make it very easy to get the information and i think that nothing is more true of that than the ability to cancel a unit's action right up to the last moment so one of the things i did a lot in this game was i would select a unit i would move it next to an enemy unit I would hover over that enemy unit to see exactly how much damage I would do to that unit down to, uh, it gives you a, a percentage out of 100. So you would do say 26% damage to that unit. And then it would let you cancel the action. The game lets you scout out exactly what your movement and damage will be to enemy units and then lets you rewind that action before you commit. And this is such a huge thing. Because what it lets you do is it lets you gather information without dying or making mistakes or losing losing the unit, getting punished essentially. And it lets you do that over and over and over and over without you having to suffer the consequences of it, a la Heroes of Might and Magic 3. Something that I struggled a lot with that game was that it felt that the only way to learn relevant unit strength was to actually get screwed over and then have to yeah. reload a save in a lot of cases what this means is that over the course of even just a short number of missions you can start internalizing a lot of the relative strengths of these units without having to fail the mission and start it from scratch mm. and over the course of two missions you will have checked the relevant strengths of these units several times and it gets to the point where you don't even need to do it. You will know that this unit will probably do about this much damage to this unit and can start acting with confidence far before, you know, after one or two hours of play. It's really, really good. I cannot praise this system enough, particularly for a game released in 2001. It feels ahead of its time with how cleanly it presents this information to the player. Yeah, there is a bit of obfuscation with like luck variants when units attack mm. each other. So you can sometimes do a bit more, a bit less damage depending. But I think that kind of like... That's a kind of variance that I'm okay with. It's normally like one damage or something at the most. Like sometimes your infantry will kill like a one HP tank. Sometimes they won't. And it kind of like adds a bit of variance that can make matches play out in different ways rather than feeling very, you know, deterministic. So, and I, I'm kind of okay with that. And you kind of get a feel for how you know risky something is as you play the variance is low enough that you make enough decisions over a course of the game to mitigate that variance yeah 
it's not like the critical hits in Fire Emblem, which were sometimes nuts. Yeah, it's it's far lower variance, and you can yeah, if you make enough decisions that that very you can account for it and still win in spite of it. And I think that the fact that units do damage based on their health in this game, like a two health means that there's two units in the squad, right, or something like that. Mm. Um, all of that kind of ends up helping the game in terms of like strategy i think some games where they just have like a one hp unit does the same like in fire emblem i think a one hp unit does the same as a full hp unit Mm. um ends up making strategy a bit worse because i made a lot of decisions in this game where like i would opt to get two units to two hp rather than killing one and leaving one tank on full just because it like made you know the chance of them killing one of my units a lot lower that kind of thing um yeah and- you you were you were mitigating their strength rather than wiping out an enemy unit and units can go back to um bases to heal but that yeah. takes a long time and truth be told at least in the single player getting a unit to 2 hp is pretty close to killing it because the missions aren't long enough for that that conservation of resources to be super relevant yeah um but yeah on the whole like i think the mechanics are really solid and very clear uh, to the player which is very important it, it's good because it's a tactics game where you can learn as you go without it being super punishing and that puts it you know far above panzer general far above heroes of might and magic um, I think that the simplicity here makes it far easier to learn than something like Fire Emblem. You can play basically within an hour or two of picking up this game. I feel like you'll have a really good grasp of the basic mechanics, and it it does a good job of teaching them to you intrinsically without the game ever descending into being super easy. Like if you make mistakes, you will get punished for them, but the game gives you all the tools you possibly can to help you avoid those mistakes. Um, it's it's very good. I I really liked the the curve of this campaign and how it taught me how to play it. You know when I didn't even do the tutorials. So big fan. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, let's go to final impressions then, shall we? I there was one final minor point I wanted to talk about, James, and then I'm ready. Um, it's something that my roommate brought up to me, who also is a big fan of Advance Wars. It's the concept of breakpoints. Um. We, we talked a little bit about the balance of this game, but damage breakpoints is an important, important concept, particularly for Advance Wars, because of how health is tied to, to damage. And basically, most units in the game, even if they have an advantage against an enemy unit, won't kill that enemy in one shot. Yeah. Or they won't kill them without a power being used, which I, I think adds a lot of tactical depth to this game because you generally can't just use a medium tank to kill a tank or use a recon unit to kill a mech unit. Um, and, you know, even without defensive bonuses, that's generally true. And this is important because if units could always kill outright enemy units, then the attacking side would have too big an advantage. They already have an advantage. They already but do it would be, have an advantage. It would be overwhelming, right? You'd be able to just wipe out the entire enemy force. By always having, or most of the time, having enemy units live through the first initial attack, um, blocking uh, entry points becomes really important because, like, an yep. inf- you know, a tank on a bridge can absorb two hits instead of one. And when you attack, well, an enemy tank that's behind you can't get through. Yeah. Uh, that that unit is safe unless they've had the foresight to set up artillery in range of it, which you know as we haven't mentioned it before, but artillery can't move an attack on the same turn. 
and yeah, I, it, it's like it's like a small thing with how they've designed and balanced this game, but they've put a lot of effort into the breakpoints, and it also makes the CO powers, which give a bit more power to your units, more meaningful because it can be used to break that breakpoint in the other direction. Yeah. And especially important because I think infantry ends up being the best units in the game due to their ability to capture their reasonable movement speed, ability to move over mountains, make use of cover, um, and just being so cheap that you can gum up the board if you have to in a choke point and just place mm. artillery behind them. Um, yeah, I think this all contributes to that feeling good. And I'm glad that like the basic unit, even late into the game where you've got medium tanks rolling out, still ends up feeling very valuable to have on the board, mm. um, which I think in some economy-based games, that isn't the case, and you end up like obsoleting a lot of your earlier units as the game goes on. So, um, you know, preserving that tactical identity of the weaker units through, um, you know, the lack of crazy one shots through cover i think is a really good thing yeah and it's what happens when you have units with pronounced weaknesses and pronounced strengths and the infantry uh, it's more true of infantry than any other unit in the game yeah so all right so let's go to final impressions then after a couple of more a couple more final notes <laughs> so i reckon that advanced wars one is an easy recommend it's a simple but deep uh, turn-based tactics game that is very clear to the player through its UI and its design. It does a really good job of presenting this fun, upbeat atmosphere that the game leans into very heavily. The combat animations look great, and I found the whole game, the economy management, the different mission types, the different commanding officer choices, the amount of content outside of the campaign, and, you know, just the depth of the strategic rock paper scissors web between the units made for a very fun time i don't i struggle to think of any you know real shortcomings in this title other than maybe the story but i don't think it's a major you know drag on the game i think the whole game is a very tight very uh, accessible package that you know anybody who likes strategy games you know from newcomers to people who've played a few of them are probably still going to have a good time so easy recommend from me yeah, and as to me, I'm. If you've been listening to the episode, you'll know where I stand on this, which is that Advance Wars is just a fantastic game. I um I was almost surprised by just how good it is. Its design is very restrained. Like it's not trying to, it's not trying to do anything nuts. It's not like the unit list roster is crazy big. Its economy model is simple. It uses a square-based grid as opposed to a hexagonal grid to make, you know, unit-on-unit -unit fights simpler as opposed to something like Panzer General. There's no upgrades or veterancy, but everything that is here is so well-constructed. The foundations here are so strong, and that's true from the balance to the basic design to the map design to the length of the campaign uh the, as james said there's not really anything to deeply criticize here because it gets all of the things that i care about right on the first try even something like the story the fact that they've gone for such a light touch just lets the gameplay shine through stronger and the aesthetics and general presentation is strong enough that it doesn't feel like the story is getting in the way in the way of the thing i care about the only I guess drawback to this game that I can realistically think of is that you have to love the tactical gameplay because that's really what's on offer here. 
if you are a person who is more invested in story and characters you may bounce off advance wars a bit because the gameplay here is to be honest a bit dry it's it's nothing fantastical or special and the fact that you know every mission restarts with new units means that you're not really developing any kind of emotional attachment but i do think that if you're a newcomer to this genre advance wars is still a great entry point if you want to try something like this out because of the clarity of information it delivers and the generally re reasonable uh, difficulty curve where you might get your ass kicked in a mission but the fact that the missions are so short that is that restarting a mission isn't even that big of a punishment it just does everything right for anyone who enjoys anything remotely tactical and i really enjoyed the time i spent with advance wars and you know i wouldn't mind booting up advance wars 2 to see what uh what evolutions it's made with the game a uh, great game easy recommend uh good pick james yeah i glad that it held up as well as like i'm glad it was as fun today as it was when i was a kid it's always a bit rough when you like play a game from your childhood and it's not up to snuff anymore but you mm. know the simplicity of the design makes it kind of timeless i think which is wonderful yeah i i mean I, like i said i was surprised at just how robust everything here is like it, it it's weird because usually with the games we do for this show they tend to be more imbalanced. Yeah. Like, e even the games that I love to pieces, you know, like, I really enjoyed System Shock 1. That game is, like, mm -hmm. messy. Yeah. It's it's a messy game. Like, it, it, I, I think the things it does well are good, but I think it also has a lot of serious problems. Uh, Advance Wars feels just like a good game. Like, I, I can't point to any bit and say, this this, sucks, they've done yeah. this badly. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe when you get into the more, like, uh, multiplayer side of it, there are significant balance problems. But for the purpose of the single-player campaign, it just it, it just, just works really well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it feels very modern in that regard, I think. Yeah. Okay, uh, so that wraps it up. Thank you so much for listening to our episode on Advance Wars. We are the Retrospectives Podcast. Uh, my name was Patrick Arthur and my co-host is James Turlings. You can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net. It's got links to all of our social media stuff. I've uploaded all of our episodes to YouTube, uh, but you can also listen to them directly or subscribe to us. It's 109 episodes so far, so heaps and heaps of content. Uh, most importantly, we have a link to our Discord server. Our Discord servers is where we do all of our interaction with our community and we accept game recommendations. So if you have any thoughts or comments on this episode or want to recommend us a game to play in the future, we would love to hear it. I would say at least a third, a quarter to a third of our episodes have been listener recommendations. So if you have one, please do drop it by us. The only thing is that we can't really do 100-hour RPGs. Uh, the three-week turnaround does make it hard to play super long games. But anything is a consideration if you have a good enough reason for it. So we would love if you would drop by. And finally, if you would like to support the show monetarily, if you're really enjoying us, we have a Buy Me A Coffee page, which we'll pop a link to in the show notes. And you, you're more than welcome to if you're interested in giving us a one-off donation or you can subscribe to us for a monthly, um, monthly cost a la Patreon. So with Advance Wars out of the way, it's time to talk about what we're doing over the next three weeks, and it's my choice, and I've gone for a classic that I've actually never played to completion, and that game is Metal Gear Solid 1. I'm surprised uh, you haven't beaten that game before. I'm kind of surprised too, to be honest. So the main reason that I never got around to playing Metal Gear Solid 1 is that my first 
uh, proper console was a PlayStation 2. Like, I, I got a PlayStation 2 around the time the PlayStation 3 release, and the Metal Gear Solid title for the, for the PlayStation 2 was Metal Gear Solid 3. So that was the first one I actually played, and it's the one I fell in love with. I did have a copy of Metal Gear Solid 1 for PC, believe it or not, but it was either only the demo or the copy I had was a pirated version. And it gets to a bit where they tell you where you get told to check the back of the disc. And the game lost me at that point because, you know, at that point in time, I wasn't smart enough to even think that I needed to check a physical CD in order to progress. So I'm excited too. I do know that Metal Gear Solid 1 uh, is more of an arcade stealth experience than the than the later titles, particularly Metal Gear Solid 3. You know, you don't have croning in bushes uh, or anything mm. like that. So I'll be interested to see how it holds up. I mean, I don't think that that's a knock against it. Sometimes a simpler design can, be, can lead I to something I think the first better. game still has a lot of, like, you know, strange little interactions and fun bits in it that makes it really enjoyable. Um, okay, well, I'm looking forward to it. And I know the story is an all-time classic, although... I think unfortunately by this point I've been spoiled on the story pretty pretty heavily if if through memes <laughs> if nothing else. Metal Gear Solid 1 is the master of camp like this game yeah. knows exactly what it's doing um, yeah. and it does it well. Hideo Kojima wanted to make a James Bond film and that's what we got. Yeah I believe one of the like the translator like did a bit of um, making it more campy than it, the actual original <laughs> script and I think it ended up making the game a lot more enjoyable so we'll see well uh, now that we've done police noughts and i know what kojima would do to lethal weapon i have a fair idea what he'd do to james bond so yeah. i'm looking forward to it <laughs> yeah all right so thanks for listening to our episode on advanced wars and we'll see you next time for metal gear solid see you then we'll see you then guys see ya